Welcome to our evening Dhamma. Tonight we're talking about right concentration. Right concentration. Um, and there's been some talk of how the word concentration isn't probably the right translation. Isn't probably the best word to use. I don't think it's that bad. I mean, I think obviously what we, when we talk about samadhi, we're talking about it in contrast or in complement to effort. So if you have lots of effort but no concentration, you get distracted. If you have lots of concentration but not enough effort, you fall asleep. So I don't think it's... I think it's pretty clear what we're talking about. And to that extent, um, concentration isn't one of those things that you can't get enough of. I mean, only mindfulness really works in that way that you want to all constantly be developing it. And so there's quite a bit of debate over the role of concentration and the nature of right concentration. Something that I could go on about for quite a while and I have talked about and it's something that is hotly debated. Um, but the, 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 the gist of it is is that the Buddha talked often about specific types of concentration which he called jhanas. Jhana means something like meditation. The word itself is used in 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 several different ways. It's it's used to describe when the bodhisattva um, stopped breathing. He practiced the jhana of not breathing. So what it just means is he 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 did some sort of meditation. Probably isn't the right word, but we use it in that sense. It was a a development or a um, it was a jhana, right? He entered into this fixed state of, you know, he he fixed himself on. The Buddha would just when 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 he wanted the monks to to meditate, he would say jayati bikoi, jayata bikoi. Sorry, jayata is, uh, I think, the same root as as jhana. Jhana is the noun. Jayati is the verb. Jayata, meditate. Focus your attention. But the Buddha talked about four jhanas, and there are eight or nine jhanas in total, but most often he talked about four of them. Uh, and so there's a lot of debate over what exactly these mean, and and I think with good reason, because it's not entirely clear or entirely certain I mean there's room clearly for interpretation and there's the rub because uh, people interpret them differently but briefly the, the jhanas involve uh, states of wholesome concentration where the mind is removed from worldly affairs there's some sense that in certain types of jhana 
And I would personally argue that there are many ways of talking about jhana. But in certain types of jhana, one doesn't even hear anything or see anything. It's totally oblivious to the world around. One is so focused on a single object that uh, the rest of the world disappears. So that's really a trance state. When we talk about the jhanas, we often refer to these trance-like states. And why there are four is because they become increasingly subtle. So the first jhana, one is... is um, observing the object one uh, one's mind one's mind is intent upon um, perceiving the object again and again and again and and contemplating it so there's this sense of of approaching the object and and kind of sticking with it uh, that's the first jhana it's also accompanied by uh, rapture, so there's a sense of, of ecstasy involved, um, like excitement in a sense, yes, this charge, this energy, if you will. And there's happiness and there's single-pointedness, so the mind is continuously focused on a single object. That's the first jhana. Second, in the second jhana, there's no more... Um, thinking about the object in the sense of sending the mind out to the object the mind is stuck on the object and it's so constant that there's no need for application or, or contemplation the mind is simply with the object one with the object if you will it's the second jhana so the first two factors disappear what we call vitaka, vitaka and vichara But there's still rapture, there's still happiness, and there's still single-pointedness. In the third jhana, rapture disappears. So there's not this excitement. The mind becomes more refined, and it's just fixed and focused on the object. Uh, that's the third jhana. The four, in the fourth jhana, but there's still, in the third jhana, there's still happiness and single-pointedness. Um, and in the fifth jhana, happiness disappears. Um, but it doesn't mean there's no feeling Happiness is replaced by equanimity So there's still these two factors of Upeka and, and Ekagata Equanimity and uh, and one-pointedness So the idea is that through practicing focusing Focused meditation, what we call Samatha meditation Generally, you enter into more and more refined states And it's usually based on a conceptual object and this is why we kind of limit our interest in samatha meditation. Not because it's not helpful, it's actually quite powerful. And the Buddha talked about how this type of meditation can lead to magical powers because you're very much in control of the mind. But the key there is control. It ends up being a bit of a problem because you can get stuck on it. You, know, you, you, get, you can get caught up in these powers. Um, as Ajahn Chah said, it's based on clinging. I don't know if I would use such strong language, but it's interesting that he would say such a thing. When many of his followers are adamant at the the it being the path to enlightenment. So this is one way of of practicing, and it's often referred to as right concentration. The Buddha certainly, that's when he when when he talked about right concentration. 
He most often talked about these four states of mind. But we'll get back to that in a second. This, um, this, what we, when we enter into these states in ordinary meditation, we have to remember again, when we talk about the noble path, we're talking about this moment where your mind is perfect. Right? That moment can't come through samatha meditation. I mean, samatha meditation isn't that moment. So to talk about those states of ordinary meditation as though they are right concentration is just clearly wrong. Those states are a precursor, potentially, like um, a practice, if you will. They certainly get the mind more focused and, and, and prepare one for the ultimate focus on the Four Noble Truths and Nibbana. But they aren't and shouldn't be mistaken for enlightenment. So this is this is one way of approaching the path where you develop these first and based on them you know then insight comes after and when insight and concentration are samatha and vipassana are are both perfect this enlightenment that's one way the way we do it and and really the way a lot of people talk about it we argue we hear these arguments but in the end if you listen to people they're mostly talking about the same thing they're mostly not talking about that most most traditions, especially the ones that argue about this, um, don't practice that type of meditation. They practice meditation where you're developing insight and tranquility in, in union. And Ajahn Chah was big on this, just to use him, not because I follow his teachings, but because a lot of people on the other side of this argument do follow his teachings. I mean, Ajahn Chah was clear that they should come together. Um, and so, you know, he said various things. I won't use him as a, he's not my favorite authority, source of authority. I mean, there were monks that were far more, I think, uh, versed in the actual texts, if you want to find a, an authority of what's in the text. And I go a little bit more towards, towards that. Um, but if, if you... If you focus on in this way, if you practice in this way, then they come together. You never really enter into these trance states where you're blissful and peaceful. There may come bliss and peace, but you're, you're cultivating uh, a different type of jhana. And the jhana doesn't come. You know, when people talk about the jhanas as being right concentration, being necessary, totally agree. I mean, I think it's a problem that we argue about this when in fact the orthodoxy is quite clear I mean, when you get to Nibbana at that moment there's no question you're in a jhana there's no question you're in one of the four jhanas usually, in our case it would be the first jhana or it would be considered the first jhana because you haven't cultivated the other jhanas um, but at that moment it's a jhana based on, on Nibbana and that's right concentration um, so um, to be clear what the Buddha seems most often to have talked about is these mundane jhanas and most often that's understood to be a trance state that involves a lot of magic and, and exalted states can even lead you to the Brahma realms so the Buddha had this sort of comprehensive practice that he got his monks to undertake um, and it, it was quite powerful but it was also completely mundane I mean these magical powers certainly aren't enlightenment and the states of trance also aren't enlightenment 
but they're powerful and they're supportive they're wholesome but if you look at the wording of the uh, the various jhanas it seems often as well the buddha was talking about something a little different he was talking about this practice of samatha and vipassana together because you're mindful so it appears in some sense that one can practice uh, jhana based on ultimate reality which makes sense because of course the word jhana just means meditation so uh, we the commentary picks up on this and and talks about two types of jhana lakkanupanijana aramanupanijana and lakkanupanijana these are the words and again and again it refers to these two types of jhana so one is aramana means an object so this is samatha meditation where you're meditating uh, and, and you're fixed and focused on a single object, a concept And because you're focused on that one object You'll never see impermanent suffering and non-self As a result you'll never see Just by focusing on that object You'll never see Nibbana uh, The other one, Lakkanupanijana Is where you're focused and fixed On the three characteristics um, it's, it's a focus on reality And the three characteristics, seeing them means it's a state of complete tranquility as well because seeing the three characteristics there is no reaction you see that the things that we would normally cling to are not worth clinging to they're not worth getting upset about so it's also right concentration and it should also be considered jhana in a sense I mean if you ever read what the various teachers talk, say on the word jhana it's nobody agrees anyway so I think this is one case where we can be, where we see people getting often too caught up in their own definition of a word. Sometimes it's true, a word has to be defined in a specific way, but it appears the word jhana should not be. There are clearly jhanas that are unwholesome and jhanas that are wholesome, that's clear. But in regards to those that are wholesome, there appears to be uh, a definite amount of leeway. And those people who argue that your way is wrong and so on and so on are in this case I would say being overly dogmatic uh, probably on both sides so I don't know hopefully that's cleared up this whole idea of right concentration for those of you who aren't aware of this whole debate the, the point here is that your mind has to be fixed and focused uh, your mind has to be in a wholesome state the real characteristic that I haven't mentioned of concentration is that it frees you of the five hindrances and so just another point as to, um, some people say you have to enter into the jhanas before you begin to practice mindfulness. And I think that's quite absurd because you have to be mindful of the hindrances. You know, the, the Buddha was quite clear that when anger arises, rather than saying, okay, get rid of the anger, you should be mindful of it. So clearly there's some leeway here. Yes, you can enter into states where there is no greed, no anger, no, no greed and no anger anyway. Um, but it's clearly not the only way I mean, If there's anger in the mind The way of mindfulness Is to be mindful of the anger And as a result of that Hey, your concentration improves And eventually you enter into a jhana Which means you enter into a state Where there's no more anger Where you're experiencing You're still experiencing things Seeing, hearing But you have equanimity about them Mahasi Sayadaw goes into detail about it's kind of a bit speculative about the idea of there being vipassana jhana 
Um, and I, I think all he's saying is that, hey, let's not be quite so dogmatic when there's no reason to and there's certainly no uh, backing for it or basis for it in the Buddhist teaching. Jhana is something that just means the wholesome concentration of the mind. And at one point the Buddha says this. He says, any concentration that is accompanied by the other seven path factors is right concentration, which is, of course, that's the key. You know, your focus, but do you also have right mindfulness? Right view? Right thought, and so on. And there's lots of ways to accomplish this. But ultimately, they must, they must involve uh, mindfulness. It means awareness of reality. Because they must involve the three characteristics and must involve a, a clear understanding of suffering. Parinya. Right? When we talked about the first noble truth, the path is not to avoid suffering and enter into blissful states. It's about letting go of suffering. Well, it's about understanding suffering. And when you see that it's suffering, you let go of it. You stop clinging to it. So, and hopefully I haven't confused you all even more, but concentration is something that comes through the practice. It's something that involves seeing things clearly. You know? Another way of translating it is right focus. When your mind is in focus means you can see things clearly. And that's important because concentration in, in the threefold training is what leads to wisdom. You know, sila, morality or ethics leads to concentration. Concentration, samadhi leads to wisdom. So it involves focus. It means you focus your attention, uh, not too too hard, just right so that you can see things, just perfect focus so you can see things as they are. That's right, concentration. So thank you all for tuning in. That's our evening Dhamma. Now we'll take questions. Two questions tonight. When doing walking meditation, my back foot seems to always start to come up at the same time I put my front toes down. Should there be awareness of both actions at the same time? Okay, well that shouldn't happen. Remember, when you're doing walking meditation, you're not trying to walk. You're trying to move one foot. And that movement should be all that's in your mind. So the technique is to only move one foot at a time. If you're moving both feet at once, well, you're doing something. You're, you're, it's suboptimal, right? Because if two things are moving at once, it's very hard to focus only on one, as you can see. So do take a little shorter step or just modify the way you think about it. It's not about walking. I'm moving this foot, right? That one's done. Then start moving the other foot. You're not trying to get anywhere. You're being aware of a movement. I've had kids do this standing still. When I have a room full of kids, they can't walk, and you wouldn't want them to anyway. Just tell them to lift their feet and put their foot down. Lifting, placing, lifting, placing. Because that's we're just trying to learn... We're trying to observe reality uh, to see how our mind reacts and to learn about the interaction between body and mind. So um, focus on one experience at a time. You can't possibly be aware of two things at once anyway. It's not technically... If you think about it, it's, it would be, be very strange to think of that as possible. 
Can an anagami experience domanasa? Is aversion a prerequisite for unhappiness? I would say no. An anagami cannot experience uh, domanasa because uh, domanasa has to do with patiga. And patiga is something that an anagami is done away with. I think. Again, very technical questions, and let me know when you become an anagami, and then we'll talk. How is enlightenment permanent? Hmm. It's like kind of like a dam crack, a crack in a dam. You can't possibly get that water back in. That's not a great analogy, but that's how I thought of this as you know. The, Think of the one thing that is irreversible. When a dam cracks, that's it. You can't fix it. When the dam breaks, there's no getting that water back in there. It's done. Um, maybe it is a fairly good analogy. It's like pulling the plug on a bathtub. Right? It's only a matter of time. It's not the greatest because you can replug the bathtub, but it's really like a crack. When you become a sotapanna and you've seen Nibbana, it puts a crack in, in, in samsara. It starts making cracks in the universe. And you see it again and again, and the cracks get bigger and bigger. You can't fix those cracks. You know, I mean, how is it? Well, it's a part of reality. It's, it's a claim we make. Um, so maybe you disagree or are skeptical, which is fine. You know, practice for yourself and see if it turns out to be not permanent, then, then you know. Is working on improving life for all beings by using science, compassion, and education, science, compassion, and education, wholesome? Yes, very wholesome. Um, you know, pr see, technically, it's not anything to do with wholesomeness. Wholesomeness is your state of mind. And that changes every moment. Suppose you say, I'm working to improve people's life using science, compassion, and education. But you still get angry, and you get frustrated, and you get burnt out, and you feel ego about your good work, and so on. All of those moments when those arise are unwholesome. Which is why the greatest wholesomeness is mindfulness. And the greatest wholesomeness is meditation, because you're clear, every moment is wholesome. And you're developing habits of wholesomeness. So, no, work is never can never be wholesome. The question is, what is your intention? Now, when your work is to better improve the life of beings, it's, of course, far more likely that wholesome states are going to arise, right? Anytime you help someone, it can be very strong and powerful wholesomeness. So, sure, of course. But be clear, it's your state of mind, right? I mean, someone says, yes, I'm working to improve the lives of beings by experimenting, using experiment, testing drugs on, on lab rats. Not very wholesome, right? Because those poor lab rats are, I mean, it's probably a reason, big reason why there's so much disease and sickness is because of how we, we treat each other, uh, living beings. We get sick all the time because we're mean and nasty people. I mean, in from lifetime to lifetime, of course. So, yes, uh, it's about moments rather than actions or, or lifestyles. <laughs>
or work or that kind of thing. Okay, so that's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. <laughs>